Welcome to this episode of On the Air, a podcast for individuals interested in teaching and learning about the profession of occupational therapy. I'm Stephanie Lancaster, and this is the space for exchanging and informing as we talk about topics and ideas related to the field of OT. Amy Mail is an occupational therapy assistant who's passionate about promoting the OT-OTA collaboration, uniting and motivating OT practitioners, advocating for occupational therapy, and finding solutions. She's the founding OTA program director at Rowan Carabas Community College in Salisbury, North, North Carolina, and is the co-author, co-editor of the comprehensive textbook, Adult Physical Conditions, Intervention Strategies for Occupational Therapy Assistance. The second edition publishes on March 8th, 2022. Amy has been an active member of the American Occupational Therapy Association and the North Carolina Occupational Therapy Association for her entire career and has served in leadership roles in both, including president of NCOTA. She's currently pursuing her doctorate in education in community college leadership at North Carolina State University. Prior to her career as an OTA, Amy was a small business owner and also worked in the social service sector. Hi, Amy. Thank you for being on the air. Thanks, Stephanie. I'm really honored and happy to be with you. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I want to start off by asking you, how did you end up in the wonderful profession of occupational therapy? Well, I will start back um, when the the first day I learned about occupational therapy, I was in my 30s. I never even knew it existed. Um, And my journey prior to that um, was uh, an interesting one as well. But I, I started out when I was in high school, I was thinking, gosh, I'm, I want to be a doctor. I'm kind of drawn to the medical profession. And, you know, as things would go and time would have, I ended up in a different route and I went to college and got a degree in psychology and knowing I would need to further my degree and doing something in the future. But, you know, I was, uh, I loved psychology and, um, got married and thought I'm going to be a counselor with my husband. He also had a degree in psychology and, you know, we started having kids and, and one thing led to another. And then I um, worked in social services for a time um, as an income maintenance caseworker with adult Medicaid and learned all about Medicaid and all the intricacies yeah. and really got um, you know good background in that. And then I totally switched careers and started a small business with my brother. And we had a great small business for seven years. I loved it. was passionate about it. I worked so hard. It was a actually a um, the coffee shop, which we also made our own fudge. We had chocolates and wow. um, gift, gift baskets, and we did all kinds of amazing things. We were at every fair, festival, event, um, being creative and, and working with corporate customers and, and everything else. And I loved it, but small business is very demanding, especially retail. <clears throat> and I found myself kind of thinking, why am I doing this? And I was getting burned out and I actually was experiencing burnout which is what led me to occupational therapy. I was like, I have to do something different. So I started looking on the the local hospital's website because I remember I'd been drawn to the medical profession early in my 
um, in my journey and thinking about careers and I was just looking, okay, what are the open jobs? And I saw occupational therapy and I thought, well, what is that? I've never heard of this before. So I did some research, looked into it, found out that in my very town, there was an OTA program. And I thought, hmm, I can do this. Even though I already have my bachelor's in psychology, Yeah, I am trying to balance my life. And um, all of the OT, master's OT programs were way too far away for me to drive to at the time. Yeah, And I thought, okay, I'm gonna do an OTA program. It's two miles from my house. It's like, this is gonna be great. And then I'll figure out if I like it or not and go from there. And uh, that was 2005 and I've never looked back. Well, and that I've, is a fascinating story. It really yeah, is. I've, I've loved every moment of my journey. Yeah. One thing I think is particularly cool about that is that you were doing things that were really kind of already in the scope of practice of OT. Yes. Yes, I was. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, here you are all these years later, um, mm -hmm. doing the OT thing. And, you know, what I always find when I talk to people that are second or in your case, maybe third career, uh, OT practitioners is that they take, they glean from their previous experience and expertise and use that in the OT profession. So it's, you know, there's the at least one or more added layers of complexity, I guess, or almost you come in with some expertise, which is uh, yeah. so valuable. Absolutely. It's, it's that lived experience of yeah. all the different um, opportunities that, you know, those second and third career people live through. And they do bring that as a foundation to the practice and interacting with individuals. And, you know, I couldn't do my job as a program director right now without having had that business background of managing yes. and hiring and, you know, budgets and everything else really laid a good foundation for me. Marketing PR um, is so important to what I do. Yes, for sure. For sure. And that's particularly important because usually in OT or OTA school, we don't get any of that or very little. So right. very little. Yeah. That's, often that's not a niche that OT practitioners have much experience with. So it's I really too. beautiful when that does come together. I feel very thankful for my journey and, you know, you don't really know what your next step is as you're going through the journey. Right. But you just yes. keep going. And, and I really felt led to occupational therapy. It was a major change for me to give up my business, uh, to kind of leave my business partner. That was hard. Yeah. And I actually started OTA school while I was still running the business. It was fourth quarter and for Ooh. a gift and candy shop, fourth quarter is like so important. So I was really juggling a lot that first semester and, um, but it was good. I, um, I'm really glad for every step of my journey. It truly has led me to exactly where I am today. Yeah, that one of my favorite words in the English English language is the word confluence, which, you know, I grew up around the Mississippi River. And so that kind of that's how I learned the word. But that what you're saying really makes me think of that. It's all these tributaries and rivers that have now come together. I'm kind of talking cow model language here, but sure. I love uh, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a really a very cool story. And so what was your favorite class in OTA school? You know, I, I would have to say um, all the classes where I was learning um, the interventions, like what do I do with 
a patient. So, you know, yeah. like I, I love the hands-on, I love um, splinting and, you know, working with individuals and understanding the why of what we were doing. So yeah. that kind of spread throughout particular, you know, several courses, but um, really the hands-on component of occupational therapy. Uh, yeah, I could see that. And I think you probably do too. I hear that from the students I get to teach pretty often. And early in the program, they're just chomping at the bit to get to that intervention. They part. are. And I think that's the hardest is explaining or getting them to understand why we just can't do that straight up. That's right. That's right. We have to lay the foundation. The foundation yeah. isn't always the most exciting part, but Not it always. has to be laid. It has yes. to be laid well in order for everything else to make sense. Yes. Yes. Very true. Very true. So what was your first job as an OTA? My first job, um, you know, they always tell you never say never, right? right so for sure. I, when I was in school and, and finishing up my um, level two field work, I thought, boy, I do not want to work in Charlotte, big city. And I do not want to work with clients that have had a brain injury because I okay. didn't have much experience with that. Right. So yeah. once you know, my very first job <laughs> was in Charlotte in a large outpatient um, center with, and I was put on the brain injury team. Oh, uh, well, yes, that's how life gives it to us. Sometimes. Right. It, it does. And so never say never. And I, I don't regret a minute of that. I, in fact, the outpatient center, um, was, you know, big city, Charlotte. So, you know, about 30, 40 minute drive from where I lived, which is not a problem. Um, but it was so great because we had such a diverse client. Um, population of not just, I mean, all walks of life, but also all different types of injury. And some people think of like outpatient as, you know, you're doing hands or like a really specific focus. We were neuro brain injury. There was pediatrics in our um, facility. Also, we did everything, Um, trauma, you name it, we did it. And um, lymphedema, hands, everything. So I really got a taste of everything. Um, I primarily worked with the adults. Um, that's my preferred population. Yes. Um, I love children, but my really passion is working with adults in, in occupational therapy. And so I worked there for three years and I loved it. I had a, a group of OTs that I worked with and another OTA who worked there as well. And we just had a, a dynamic team um, started some programming with, uh, constraint induced movement therapy with an mm. OT. We started a program and, um, it was just a wonderful learning experience for me. That it really sounds like a spectacular job in general, but first job. Yes. Because it's almost like a continuation of your field work in a way. Yeah, it, it was. I, I learned so much that first year and working, interprofessionally with the PT team, the speech language um, pathologists that were there. We really had a wonderful team dynamic of just a variety of people. I could ask anybody anything. Um, I learned so much. I remember asking one of the OTs I worked with, I said, Rose, I was feeling overwhelmed as as many students do or, or new first year grads do. Yeah, we all have that imposter syndrome and it's so strong out of school, you think. They're letting me work with patients. I don't know what I'm doing. Right, right. And I I said, Rose, how am I, I think I was probably six months in, how am I going to 
know everything. How will right. I, there's just so much. Yes. And looking at this diverse group of, of practitioners I was working with and the patients and all the challenges that came our way. And she said, Amy, dear, you do not have to know it all. Just find your niche and go deep. And that was such good advice for me at that time. That's exactly what I needed to hear that you don't, you, you know, it is overwhelming to think I have to know all things and to be a great practitioner and you can find your niche and really, you know, flow in that. And then we can change, um, our, our practice settings in occupational therapy, which is one of the beautiful things about OT. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, that goes back to what I said earlier about the scope of practice and how your background played into that. But I think something that can be hard for OT practitioners and others is because our scope of practice is so big, figuring out what is it that is our distinct value or our expertise. And I think what you just said is really the answer to that. It's all of us don't have that whole broad, you know, area of expertise, but collectively we do. That's right. Exactly. And we can't know it all and we shouldn't be expected or expect that of ourselves. Um, That is the beauty of the collection, the collective, um, community of OT practitioners. It it definitely is for sure. Well, here's a question I've just thought of as you were talking earlier. And, and I think this one might be good to think about as an, for you being an OT educator, but also having been an, what we call a non-traditional OT student to, you know, in your background and your preparation for your career, how did your experience in OTA school, especially being a non-traditional student, how has that impacted the way you support your students now? Um, you know, I think it, it enables me to really have that perspective of students as holistic occupational beings, that they have many huh. roles that they are holding And especially at the community college level where I'm teaching and have this program, um, our students have so many diverse needs. We have parents, um, we have individuals who are taking care of elderly parents. We have those with, um, that are, you know, young and on their own and trying to make it and work and have their own apartments. We have this really incredible diverse um, set of students. We have single parents and first-generation college students, um, students of all different types of backgrounds and diversity. And and so really understanding um, that each person brings their unique perspective, their lived experience to the classroom, and how can we leverage that for everybody's benefit? Everybody has something to bring to the table. So we encourage our students to speak up and, and share your perspectives. But it helps me and my team really understand our students and try to help, um, fill the gaps for them when we see, you know, that something is going on that they are struggling with, you know, how can the college support them? How can we support them and identifying those areas of of challenge so we can help them be successful in this role. And we really encourage them to try not to work as much as possible um, because we know that work work is important, um, but working while you're in school is really challenging because it's hard to master the material. It's rigorous. Um, an OTA program is very rigorous and we're squishing it all together at our program in, in five semesters. And there's a lot to learn. And, and we have high expectations for our students because we know yes. that we want to produce excellent practitioners 
and that they can do it, that they have that experience to bring. And as that diverse group of individuals, they are going out into the community and they are, they are doing occupational therapy with their clients and bringing that experience to their clients. I think that's really powerful. And, you know, even when we just think about just straight on teaching, not the rest of it, not the support or the mentorship or the advising or any of that, but the teaching, a lot of people in education, especially maybe in higher ed, the way we tend to teach is the way that we, it's, it's one of two things, either the way we were taught or it's the distinct opposite. You know, if we didn't think that was the best or whatever, but I think that's sometimes that's good, but it also can be something that adds a challenge to, to our jobs and to our students learning. And so um, something I want to ask you about is your decision to go back to school and get a doctorate in education. How did that decision-making process go for you? Um, sure. That's a, a really great question. Um, I, I love the power of education. I love opportunities to change my lens, expand my lens and my viewpoint. Yes. Um, and I think for, for me, education is a lot of that. Uh, it's, it's learning different things and listening and growing and developing myself. Um, I, you know, I, I love occupational therapy. Um, I've been drawn to teach and, and start this program and I absolutely love it and I love my role. And I knew that there was more to know. And, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, I want to do this for me. I, I want to go back to school because I love learning. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I would have never thought I would be in an, an EDD program for community college leadership. I yeah. didn't even work in a, in a community college 10 years ago. And, you know, honestly, there's a stigma about community colleges that they yes, don't maybe offer like the best education or, you know, it's easy because it's an open door access. Um, but really working in the community college system has just completely changed my viewpoint of community colleges. I am passionate about community college and um, our mission and our vision for what we have for the community and for you know helping people um, in the community change and grow and get that education they need and then to serve the community that they live in. So you asked me to, I digressed a little bit. Um, you yeah. can tell I'm passionate about the community college. Yeah, so, it's easy to um, do, yeah. And in my doctoral program, you know, I really was looking for, I've been looking at doctoral programs for probably five years. Wow. Um, and just kind of, you know, it was a goal, maybe even longer. Like one day I'd like to do that. I'd like to, to have that experience. And I never could quite find the right program. And then I found the program at NC State that was a format that I was interested in. Um, it was an executive format, which meant we were going to meet face-to-face. Um, Friday evenings and all day Saturday, every other weekend for two and a half years. And I thought that fits my learning style. You okay, know, I'm, good. I'm, yeah. a little bit, I'm a little bit older, so I'm kind of old school and the online learning honestly was not um, what I was looking for. I it wanted it can be really tough. Uh, some people it, I think love it, but I, some of us right, don't. Right. And it does offer that flexibility for a lot of individuals. And so there's, yeah. a, there, there's a lot of positives to say about that. But I knew for me personally, um, I have a lot of demands on my life um, and things that I'm involved in, and I needed to have protected time yeah. that I could set aside and I'm, I'm going to class, I'm going to work on things. And so, um, and then also looking at the, the mission really of the program that I joined, 
um, it's really to create leaders in the community college system. And I am a leader. And so I want to learn more. I want to know more. And I also appreciated that they have a focus on equity and diversity and really focusing on um, making the community college a better place, um, improving the outcomes and creating leaders who are going to have that focus. So that really um, appealed to me. And I have learned so much. So we, I was accepted into the program in February of 2020. And we were scheduled to start in May. And of course, then we all know what happened in March of 2020. Yep. <laughs> and we completely shifted to Zoom. Yeah. Um, so much for the would, plan of in-person. Yeah. Right, right. But, you know, I will say that um, the professors did an amazing job. We, we held synchronous Zoom sessions. So it was almost like being, you know, it still had that appeal that I was looking for, that yeah. connection with other people, because I really work best in where I can be connected with other people and engage and, and listen and have dialogue. And so that's what I was really seeking. And we still had that opportunity through Zoom and they did a really great job with that. We've been back in the classroom a little bit and then we had a little setback, but yeah. uh, this coming weekend, we're, we're supposed to be in person again. So for our next course that starts. That's really good. Yeah, I can relate to that. I went back and got my EDD also as a more seasoned OT practitioner. And um, really, I was 45 when I went back and um, I even got a master's um, because I'm, you know, one of those that had just a bachelor's in OT. And, and um, so I didn't graduate until I was in, I was in my early fifties with, um, an EDD, but in the program I went through was all virtual, almost all asynchronous. And I, unlike you, I made the mistake of, I really didn't think about that much about the background of the, I mean, I, I looked at the mission of the program and, you know, I kind of looked up the professors and, you know, their publications and things like that, but I did sure. not, think about as much my learning style versus, you know, other things. And I should have really looking back, but um, a term you used, I've learned the hard way was really important to me, it protected time. Mm -hmm. And the strategy I came up with through trial and lots of error was um, actually scheduling on my, like my planner and yes, saying like from one to five, I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to check email. Like I'm just doing this module. Yes. And yeah, I would tell my family, like if, unless it's an emergency, you know, don't ring my phone, I'm unavailable. And, you know, if I was at work, I would put a sticky note on my door that said unavailable, except emergency. And it took me a while to figure that out, but I think that having that for students at any level at any age is really important. I agree. We, we also try to encourage our students to do that as they are entering the OTA program. Like you've got, you know, look at your balance. Yeah. How are you planning your time? You're going to have to have protected time outside of being here in the classroom. You're going to be here a lot, but yes. there's a lot to be That's done outside be of the classroom. And you have to protect that time and make time for it because you're investing in yourself by being in the program. It's true. It's just like a, a money budget. You know, yeah, if you just exactly. randomly do it, it's going to be a, a, probably a mess. That's but right. if, you, if you have know what's going to what, you're good. Um, even in high stress, like I have six things due this week, you know, that kind of a week we all have, 
you can do it because you you can see on paper that you can. So you have that's your, right. your data there for that's it. That's right. And, and it takes sacrifice too. So that's the oh, other important yeah. piece. Like, you know, knowing going into something, this is going to be for X number of years or months or weeks. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to line up, you know, get my protected time, communicate with my loved ones about what's going on, have their support, and then, you know, be motivated and stay focused and keep going, which sometimes is hard because yeah, there's a lot to be done, right? Being in a doctoral mm-hmm. program is, is tough. Um, I am thankful for the cohort of individuals that I'm with. It's oh, a yeah. based model and I love that. So yes. it's been fun getting to know them. Um, yeah. The they really home. can be not only our greatest supports, but in a way our greatest teachers. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. I've learned so much through, um, the individuals that are in my cohort with me and I really enjoy engaging with them and, and hearing their perspectives about where they work and what they think about things. It's, it's been, um, a very rich part of my educational process. Yeah. I had that same experience, fortunately. And in fact, um, one of my very best friends now was, you know, she and I kind of emerged in the cohort as just people who had a lot of similarities and, um, and even being asynchronous, we, of course, like a lot of, of classes, we had a group me and we were always like, when sure. is this due? Or what did the teacher mean by that? You know, that sort mm-hmm. of, yeah. And yeah. she and I just started texting on the side and then we started meeting for coffee and then we started, you know, proofreading each other's dissertations and, you know, that sort of thing. And her area of expertise is community college. And, um, so here's a question I have for you. And I think maybe a lot of people don't know this, um, how would you describe the community college model? What, what have you learned about that, that other people might not know? Um, thank you for asking that. I, you know, without going into all of the history, um, and I also want to also say, because I know your podcast is national, that the community college is not the same in every state. There are, hmm. there are differences, right? So okay. some states can, yeah, some states can confer bachelors at the community college level. Um, in North Carolina, we cannot. In fact, most states cannot, but there are quite a, the few that, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. quite a few that can. Um, so the community college really is designed so that people in a state who live within a certain number of miles um, have access to affordable education. And so the model is beautiful because it's really supporting the residents of a state to increase their knowledge, increase their skills, um, and then be productive members of society. So whatever that looks like for them, whether it's um, career and technical education, like welding or you know, Brick Mason or, or there are so many different programs yeah. that, that, you know, you can go into a program for and get like a, um, a diploma in a year or an associates in two years and come out with being a skilled person and having these trades and make a lot of money. And in fact, oh, yeah. sometimes a lot more money than you can make with a four-year college degree, that's right? right? Yep. So, so I think that's under, that is lesser known. Um, and then there's the transfer model of where, and this is a beautiful opportunity for students to come to the community college, do their first two years, get the gen eds out of the way, and then transfer to a university that they want to go to. And a lot of states have um, programs for like dual enrollment in high school, or like we call it community college promise. Um, and 
then there are other programs like early college high schools that are kind of a nuanced opportunity for students to come to the community college and have high school do all their high school at the community college in addition to getting their social wow. degree. So in four years, get their high school diploma and an associate's degree. Okay, um, that's, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool model also. Um, and, and we have three of those at my college, three different focuses for those. And then you've got also like community colleges are huge producers of healthcare, um, right? So nursing, radiography, yeah. dental, occupational therapy, physical therapy, um, and others. So those are the ones mm -hmm. that are at my college, but so many. And so we are the producers of the workforce um, for the area. And so there's a lot of opportunity for partnership with, um, you know, uh, healthcare agencies and yeah. you know, hospital systems and other types of partnerships, workforce development. So there's a lot of partnership that is going on behind the scenes that people probably don't know about. Um, and so looking at like business and the community college gets together to bring um, particular um, corporations to an area. So, you know, we're going to train the workforce for this business to come. Um, so you see that a lot in the community college system as well. Yeah, that's thank you for sharing that. I think that's really great information. In in Tennessee, where I am, we have we also call it the Tennessee Promise, so kind of similar. And um, it's a program that started in 2015 that allows every high school graduate to go to community college for free for two, for two years. And, and so we are seeing more and more um, the, that feed into the four year or even yeah. you know, and it's like, degrees. I love that because why yeah. wouldn't you? I mean, it just, I know. just looking at like dollars and cents here, right? Yep. What an it's free. It's it's a huge yep. like it's an investment that the state is making in its citizens to be able to improve their workforce, improve the education of the citizens, and it just makes sense, you know. And and so taking that route, being willing to try that route, um, and, and go for two years free. I mean, gosh, the money you could save yeah. is incredible. And so also, incredible. So then there's also a lot of effort being given to that transfer pathway. So yeah. to make those, um, and a lot of attention to that. Okay, so we're gonna go to the community college for two years. Will everything transfer to a four-year school? And yep. so people are doing lots of work in that in that realm as well. Yeah, knowing that that is gonna be the choice of a certain percentage of those students, the legwork is done, you know, most of the time, hopefully that we know it's going to be transferable. It's not going to be something that's a weird course name and nobody knows what it is or just exactly. with things. And yeah. Um, and so I would think that given that difference of that community college model, I would think that there's some intricacies or nuances of being a leader in that context that, you probably have learned about in your current role. I wonder if you might talk about that a little. Sure. Um, so yes, I think, and I think it depends on what level of leadership we're talking about, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, this particular program I'm in um, with NC State, really their focus is to create, they're specifically designed to create future leaders of community colleges, not just for North Carolina, but for everywhere. So okay. presidents, vice presidents, deans, you know, anybody in leadership that needs this foundation um, to really 
lay, to make good decisions for community colleges and to be informed and to be using the right framework. Um, so I think for me, some things that I've learned and I'm really applying now um, to my current role as program director is really looking at the data and um, you know, very data-driven. Um, of course, a lot of that is surrounding our equity work and our diversity work and yeah. looking at the data and determining, you know, we, we need to disaggregate the data and not look at it just in a big clump. And yeah. how, is it, how is it really impacting these particular um, first-generation college students, uh, college students of color, you know, all the different um, low socioeconomic status, uh, single parents, how is, how, how, what are the outcomes for those individuals? And so really honing in on the data so that we can make good informed decisions about how to lead, what supports, how to allocate resources. Um, those are the things that I'm most interested right now in, in looking at. And I'm almost done with my coursework and I'm moving into my dissertation. Yes, um, I was gonna ask you that if you yep. have an idea for your topic. I, I do, I'll, I'll get back to that. Um, so I wanna just give an example of how I'm using that data right now. Um, yeah. And and so also the, the North Carolina um, Belk Center um, for Community College Research and Leadership um, out of NC State is, is really leading a lot of this work. And they're bringing together people from the national um, forefront. And, and they have what's called um, the um, Dallas Herring Lecture Series. And, and I would encourage you to look some of those up. Um, Dallas Herring Lecture, they are lectures that are given annually through the Belk Center at NC State. And they are really focusing on what is most important right now from a global perspective or a national perspective within the community college system. And the one that was just this last um, November was by Dr. Gregory Hale of Broward Community or Broward College in um, Florida. Okay. And I was really um, inspired by what he shared. And he, he, his, my big takeaway from what he shared was really looking for who we are missing. And he was very strategic in looking at the community and where his college is, the communities and where his college is, and identifying even by the zip code, who do we not have in our community college? Who are we missing? That's and then really implementing a very strategic approach with some partnerships um, to find those people and get those people into the college. And so I'm actually presenting at AOTA Inspire um, on this topic, and I kind of borrowed his title, Who Are We Missing? And yeah. How to Improve Diversity in Occupational Therapy Education, because I wanted to take that same approach with my area, and I'm partnering with my admissions folks here mm -hmm. to really be prescriptive and like, let's look at, in our two-county service area, because we are, we span two counties, and looking at the profession, looking at the demographics, um, looking at who we're, who we're training in this field, who are we missing and where are the pockets that we can go and start recruiting heavier to? Do they not even know about occupational therapy? Um, and so we're being very, very um, thoughtful in our approach of doing that. And so that's something currently that I'm using right now for my leadership um, journey in my doctoral program to make a difference right now in my program. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm going to definitely come to your talk at the conference. Thank you. Yeah, that's fascinating. So your dissertation then. Yeah, so I'm, I'm moving into the dissertation. Um, you know, as I think pro 
I, I will go on a limb and say every doctoral student changes their mind and their topic, yeah. you know, at yep. least once. Um, yep. And I, I did change mine, uh, but I am going to be looking at, I really wanted to focus on the community college presidents um, because I, you know, there's a saying, the higher you go, the lonelier it is. I and, heard that. Yep. Right. And so, and we even know that as a, as a program director, you know, there are fewer program directors and there are faculty members. So think about a president and, and the massive responsibility it is of leading a college and who do you talk to? Right. So um, I'm inspired by that. I've had conversations with several presidents and um, I'm hoping to research how presidents handle crises and um, and I'll get more narrowed and specific and, and I have some yeah. ideas about what I'm going to do, but really because, you know, they are, they are handling multiple crises at any given time and how do they communicate with their faculty and staff? Um, how do they manage the crisis? How does it, um, what do they do as far as knowing what to do and who to talk to yeah. and, um, are they following their protocol? I mean, we can go on forever and I, I will narrow it more specifically. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking at um, some theories that support that work and um, connecting. And so that's kind of the broad topic. Um, of that is doing. fascinating. And you mm -hmm. know what comes into my mind when I think about that is it's a little bit like the OT process. Yes, it is. Yes, really it is. Kind of, so. you know, or almost like a, um, mm -hmm. you know, when you think about the ethics commission and, you know, our, our ethical dilemma or ethical decision-making process, what, how do you weigh all the choices and then how do you make a choice based on that? So I think right. that'll be really, you may develop a flow chart or something. That's really cool with that. You know, you can't take the occupational therapy out of an OT no. practitioner, right? So there was That's certainly, right. if, even if OT does not end up in the dissertation, yeah. um, it certainly informs my thought process of what yes. I'm doing and thinking. Yes. It will be an overlay for sure, whether mm -hmm. other people realize it or not, I'm sure right. it will be. Um, well, one thing I want to ask you about before we run out of time, Amy, is I know you have um, something really cool coming up next week, which is your book coming out or the second edition coming out. Yes. And um, I, would you talk a little bit about that? Like, you know, how it went with the first one, how you even got into that, anything you want to share about that? Sure. Thanks for asking Stephanie. Yes. The, um, I'm really excited for the second edition. I've, I told my co-author, it's a little bit like waiting for a baby to be born. You know, you just, this uh, yeah. great anticipation, all this work has gone into yeah. this, um, this book. And now and you're in the waiting phase. Now we're in the waiting phase. Just finished up the final, final little everything last night on the back end. Um, so the um, adult physical conditions, intervention strategies for occupational therapy assistance is the title of the book. And my um, very incredible, wonderful co-author and co-editor is Amber Ward, who is an occupational therapist. And mm -hmm. she and I paired together um, back in 2013 was our very first conversation about writing a book. And we were asked by a publisher to chat with her about what are the needs of occupational therapy assistant programs? And we we're like, well, let me tell you the need. We, you know, we are, are pulling together resources and we don't really have enough. Um, we don't have any books that have enough like really 
intervention focus. There's yeah. those books that have a lot about the conditions. And yeah. I mean, both kind of back that. to what we were talking about, like what the OT and OTA students want is like, that's the meat of it. And exactly. So yes. do we as practitioners. Yes. Yes. So we wanted to, you know, we saw this opportunity. We can identify the gap. And, yeah. and I'm the kind of leader who, when I identify a gap, I'm going to do something about it. I'm solution focused. Either I'm going to do it or I'm going to get somebody else to do it, but we need to address yeah, this. Yeah, that's a leader and, in you. You can't deny it. Yes, yeah. that is true. Yeah. Um, so we we set out on this journey. It was an, it's been an incredible journey. It took uh, five years, start to finish for the first book, Wow. the first edition. And you know, really the first two years of that was like kind of figuring it all out, but really it took three years to actually write to the publishing, to the yeah. pu- date of publication. And, and we did it also with a host of wonderful contributing authors, because again, back to our earlier conversation, nobody knows everything, right? Mm. And so we could write ourselves about our own, we could write Amber and I about our own areas of uh-huh. practice and our specialties, and then kind of co-author some chapters and learn more and grow. I grew so much through this I whole- bet. Can't even tell you how much I grew and how much I loved the the challenge and the opportunity and um, it took a lot of tenacity and grit to to do this. It I just people have no idea what takes to go into what it takes to you know produce a textbook. Um, yeah, but it's been an honor. Your usual responsibilities, which are great in right, importance right. and in demand. Yes, yes. So while I was writing that first edition, I was starting this program at Warren Cabarrus Community College. I was also serving as the state president of the North Carolina Occupational Therapy Association. And I was writing the textbook and my daughter had her first child. So grandparenting. So it it was just an incredible time of life. Uh, So fast forward to to today, really writing it um, with Amber was the best because she had the occupational therapist perspective. I had the yeah. occupational therapy assistant perspective. We had talked together in an OTA program, oh, and, which was great where I was full-time faculty and she was coming in as the adjunct and okay. initially didn't know how to teach. And so I kind of was like mentoring her to teach. And then she was bringing all that incredible, her, you know, 25 years of clinical experience to the classroom. And we just hit it off and our strengths and um, just really are very compatible. Um, and so we make a beautiful team and I, I couldn't do it with anybody else. Um, and she really values and respects me and I feel the same for her. And you know, I never felt less than as an OTA um, writing this book with her or from any of the contributing authors who many of them are occupational therapists. Um, and we were able to get a few more OTAs in the second uh, edition yeah. as authors, which I was really happy about. Um, and the second edition came about because it was time to update. The OTP F4 was yep. coming out and um, th- there was, you know, midstream, there was a change in the ethics document. So we, we knew we want this text to be evidence-based, fresh, useful. And so we used feedback from students who had used the first edition, faculty who had used it, made some changes. We have a great new chapter um, on working with diverse and marginalized populations. Um, which is really unique. We pulled out um, dementia into its own chapter. We have a chapter on sexual sexual activity and intimacy. Um, we had kind of had that topic spread throughout, but we heard some feedback like, hey, we want a chapter on this. So we found some 
great authors who specialize in that topic and they wrote that chapter. And so it's been um, such a joy and an honor to work with all these people and to work with Amber and our publisher. And really the most rewarding thing for me is um, when students like contact me and say, we love your book. Like, oh, because yeah. students don't love textbooks, right? Like they're yeah. required to buy them. And, but to hear the students um, and the faculty say, this is a great resource. Thank you so much for providing this because you're giving us a tool to do our jobs better and to learn better. And, you know, that's why Amber and I wrote it. We wrote it because we wanted something better um, to use with our students. And so really it's, it's kind of like our gift to the profession. You know, we'll, yeah. we, we did it on our week. Yeah, a legacy. We did it on our weekends, our vacations, our evenings. Uh, I have no idea how many hours I spent on the textbook um, between the two editions. And it was it was born through a lot of sacrifice. Um, I I'm will sure. tell you that I sacrificed time with family. I've had to say no to family and friends multiple times, way too much, but I knew there was an end in sight. And so mm-hmm you know, we're here. It's, it's launching next week. I'm so excited. It's full color. Um, and if you haven't seen the cover, it is beautiful. It is so occupation focused and, um, it's, it's just really well done. Well, I'm definitely going to keep my eye out for that. Um, I'm really glad that you had the opportunity to really embed that OTOTA partnership, because I think that's something that if, any OT practitioners have not experienced that that beautiful relationship that you're describing, they're they're missing something. I think I, I have an OTA bestie, I guess I call her, and she and I had the privilege of working together for almost 20 years. And um, then both of us left that clinical position and went into academia in two different programs. And but it's funny because we we get together regularly, we talk regularly and compare notes or just support each other. And you know, it turned into from a kind of a business partnership to a really a very close personal friendship. And we've supported each other through lots of life events and um And it's just, it's really, I say to the students that I teach a lot, I would say she is definitely in the top few people who I have learned uh, the most about myself and in this profession from her. Um, She's really, really good at interpersonal communication and relationships. And she's just taught me a lot about that and continues to. So it's really just the best case scenario when you can find that sort of partnership. I think so too. And I think there's such an opportunity to use occupational therapy assistance more than we are in practice because we are less expensive and, you know, we can't do everything obviously, but we can do all the treatment and that's our specialty. And in fact, we had OT programs say, hey, we wish we could use your book because it's so rich in the treatment. I part, was thinking right? that as you were talking yeah. about it, like, oh, um, I'm going to, I want that for myself. Right, right. And so it is, it is important to value that relationship and that, you know, one role, like being an OTA doesn't necessarily lead to being an OT. It could. Right. And for some people, that pathway is their preferred pathway, right? That's, that's their pathway. And, and that's awesome. I have many former students have gone that route. Yeah. For me, um, I love being an OTA and I took, you know, a different leadership route um, than being an OT. And 
um, I just bring a different perspective, but working together, both roles are so important to have that together and that respect and understanding uh, also of who can do what. And I think sometimes um, that's maybe not as well addressed in OT schools. I agree. You know, what, what is the scope of the practice of an OTA and how can we best use them? And hey, for thinking bottom line, for healthcare organizations and reducing, you know, the cost of delivering services, let's hire some OTAs so that, you know, we, we are still providing excellent care um, and we just have different roles. So I think it's an important consideration. And um, I'm so glad that you had that incredible or have yeah. that incredible relationship with an occupational therapy assistant. I, I am too. And, you know, more than one, but this one in particular, just because we worked together for so long and our, our sure. personalities, like you said, our, our strengths worked and they weren't the same, you know, we, we complimented each other, I guess is what I'm trying to yeah. say. So That's it's beautiful. very fortunate when that happens. Um, well, Amy, I know we're getting towards the end of the time that we scheduled for this. And I, you know, I feel like I could talk to you for much, much longer, but for the sake of the length of the podcast episode, we probably yes. need to wrap it up. Is there anything that I have not asked you about or that hasn't come up in conversation that you wanted to, you know, share with listeners? Sure. Um, you know, I think being um, an occupational therapy assistant and a leader um, is an opportunity to build others up. And so really my, my leadership style is to, you know, take charge when I have to, because sometimes decisions have to be made and somebody has to make the decisions and then take the responsibility for those decisions. But um, especially like in an emergent situation, right? Um, and somebody has to keep moving the ball forward and have that vision. And, but really my, my passion for leadership is, um, you know, finding the gaps, finding the solution, but also really building people up, finding, you know, where they can best um, find ways to grow and improve yeah. themselves and really helping individuals um, be passionate about what they do and stay passionate in occupational therapy. And so I really want to promote that growth um, in each individual practitioner, wherever they are, to say yes to opportunities, to grow, to, to never stop growing, um, and to find opportunities. And, and part of that leadership journey for me um, is the opportunity to potentially serve on the board of AOTA. I'm a candidate right now uh -huh. um, for the AOTA board, one of three candidates for two positions. And, you know, looking forward to that um, possibility of leading. And um, that role is not one that I would take lightly. Um, it's, yeah. a lot be a of big it's a huge role with a lot of responsibility. Um, but I think my leadership experiences, especially at the state level um, and leading in the North Carolina Occupational Therapy Association, um, help a lot with that. And my other, you know, owning a small business and then leading and developing a program here kind of is all kind of leading to that in my passion for occupational therapy assistance. And um, I've been told by so many people that I am diplomatic and a good listener. And I think those are skills that are important for being a really vital member of our, of our board of um, occupational therapy. But you know, if I don't get the position, that's okay too. I will continue to lead and serve. I'm a servant at heart and I've been doing volunteer work since I was really 13 in significant ways. So being a volunteer is very important to me. 
Yeah. And the, the thing is there's, there's a lot of work to be done. So I always kind of feel that way in my involvement at the state level and really in AOTA also is if one thing doesn't work out, there's a hundred more things to choose from really. There's no, no shortage of work to be done. Absolutely. The opportunities are endless and, and we need all of us together really working yeah. and, and um, you know, just valuing one another and each other's perspective so that we can have that, that vision and purpose and move, move forward, move the profession forward. I think so too. And you know, a, a word that we've talked about a lot in this conversation and then in the larger conversation of our profession is diversity. And I think that, you know, I actually have this in my, is like a quote at the end of my email signature, but in, in diversity, there is strength. And I really, I believe that so wholeheartedly. And I can tell that you do too. And we mentioned also kind of that, that collective strength in our profession earlier in the conversation. I think those two things together really, speak to what you're talking about that, you know, it's, that's what we need is that diversity of thought, diversity of background, but then also respect and recognition that that's, that's the, that's the first prize. I mean, that's the gold star right there is that's what we really should be always striving for. I think because it's, it's better. It is. We, We really need, we need every practitioner to be part of AOTA. Yes. Um, that, that is my goal. Every practitioner to be part of AOTA in some, in some way. And right. to, to, because we are better together and I don't want to leave anybody out. Right. Right. Everybody's voice has value. And, you know, it's, it's great when we can hold space for those voices to be heard really and, and recognized in an active way, not a passive way. So, yes. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for taking time out of your really busy schedule to talk to me. Um, I really appreciate it. And I hope our paths cross again. I'm going to look for you at AOTA conference. Stephanie, thank you for the time and creating this space um, to have these conversations. I've enjoyed it. I agree. I could feel like we could talk for hours, Yeah. Um, but I, 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 the time has flown. But again, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thanks for listening. Please share about the podcast to help us connect with others interested in occupational therapy and OT-related topics. Thanks again, and I look forward to engaging via future episodes. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.